Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Climate Brief, a podcast on climate news in the region stretching from Eastern Europe to Russia, down to the Caucasus and Central Asia. I'm Natalie Soer, a Paris-based environmental journalist. And I'm Angelina Davidova, originally from Russia, now a Berlin-based climate journalist. This is a particularly momentous time to be discussing climate politics in our region. We are recording this on Saturday the 1st of October, one month and one week before the start of the climate summit in Egypt, COP27. The Kremlin's war against Ukraine continues to rage, as every day brings its extra share of war crimes, sacrifices more citizens as cannon fodder, pollutes the environment and breaks down channels in climate diplomacy. But above all, we have just witnessed what perhaps constitutes a new stage of what experts call hybrid warfare. Earlier this week, three leaks were detected in the gas pipelines linking Russia to Europe, Nord Stream 2 and Nord Stream 1. Specifically, two of them are located in the Swedish and Danish waters of Nord Stream 1, which stopped delivering gas to Europe last month, and one in Nord Stream 2, which, although not commercially running, still contained gas. On Thursday, the Swedish Coast Guard said they had spotted a fourth leak, which, according to media reports, is on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. At the time of recording, the Coast Guard has not confirmed this. In a joint letter to the UN Security Council, Denmark and Sweden declared that they had been at least two detonations with several hundreds of kilos of explosives, causing major leaks into the Baltic Sea. So, what exactly are the leaks' environmental impacts? Is it the methane bomb we might fear? What can we do to fix it? And could these events prompt governments to take climate security, as well as energy security, more seriously? My co-host Boris Schneider and I will be discussing this today with Sasha Müller-Grenner, a Berlin-based energy and climate expert and the federal director of the NGO Environmental Action Germany. We just about managed to catch him between events. But before we hear what Sasha has to say, I'd be keen to hear your view on the situation, Angelina. What are your thoughts on this, and particularly the idea that it might be a sabotage by Russia against its own infrastructure? Well, indeed, in the last few days, it has been discussed in international media who is to blame. And uh, one of the options is that uh, Russia actually did it. Now, to me, it obviously looks and sounds crazy. Like, why would you explode your own pipeline when you can still make at least some money on gas deliveries to Europe? I guess we have to see where the investigation is leading us to. So far, as I said, as you also mentioned, Natalie, a few options. And um, yeah, we have to see where it's taking us to. But speaking more generally about the case, um, I believe it's it's a very important case. It's like a globally and also historically important case, both in terms of energy security and environmental and climate consequences. Well, what's important now is that uh, it's all unraveling as we speak and as we record this episode. The gas is still leaking. And um, we can obviously speak about direct environmental consequences and uh, more indirect climate consequences, right? The greenhouse gases. And um, I believe we speak about the letter with uh, Sasha uh, later in, in the interview. As for more direct environmental consequences, I had a few conversations with some Russian uh, marine environmentalists, so environmental experts who specialize in marine ecology, 
And uh, they also say it's a bit difficult to estimate now the exact damage that the marine ecosystem will get, the marine ecosystem of the Baltic Sea. Well, basically, they said something very tragic. So unless we see uh, how much dead fish we get or how much other living creatures will die by the by the end of that accident, we'll probably not be able to estimate, you know, what's the damage to ecosystems, to biodiversity, to fish, to mammals, and to, uh, to plankton and to other creatures living in the sea. I also wanted to say that actually Baltic Sea is a very special sea. If you take a look on a map, you will see that the entrance to Baltic Sea through the Danish Straits It's actually very narrow. Um, it brings following effects. Well, first of all, uh, Baltic Sea acts like an internal sea, one can say. So the water changes completely and totally only once every 50 years, which obviously leads to the fact that whatever pollution is coming to the sea, it also remains there for long. And um, another special feature of the sea is that the water of the sea is actually not salty. It's something which is called uh, brackish water. And that happens because there are many large freshwater rivers flowing into the sea. And it's their water mixes with the salty water of the North Sea um, flowing into the Baltic Sea. Now, what consequences does that have? Um, that means that the brackish water of the Baltic Sea provides habitat for many creatures, many special creatures, which can only live there and not elsewhere. And those kind of ecosystems develop throughout centuries and like actually thousands of years. And once again, any environmental damage, which is happening now, uh, will take years for the creatures to recover and also will take quite a lot of time for their ecosystems and biodiversity to come back to what it was before. But that's like, as I said, more than the environmental situation, we'll only be able to speak when, when the leak has been stopped at least. I also believe the accident at the pipelines uh, demonstrate the whole world that that can actually potentially happen to other pipelines. But then it also posed the question, um, right, do we need them? especially at the times as we're trying to fight climate crisis, especially at the time when we're trying to reduce our dependence on oil and gas. Uh, those are all open questions, but I believe that the particular case around Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 just demonstrates us and makes us think about the future of energy supplies for many countries and regions of the world. Well, it also makes me think how much did it cost to build all of these pipelines? And there were, this was quite a lot of money, actually, an amazing lot of money, uh, both the underwater part and the land part, because in on the territory of Russia, uh, Nord Stream is also, um, also has a terrestrial part, which goes all the way from the old region to the Baltic Sea. And that cost a lot. There were also a lot of efforts in trying and do environmental impact assessment. And um, some ecosystems have been ruined to build that pipeline. And um, now we have it not working. We have it exploded. And um, it's really a shame that that had happened in the first place and that it's also happening now. And Angelina, you were talking about damages to biodiversity. Have there been any dead fish 
appearing at the surface of of the of the sea. At the time that we're recording it, and that is Saturday, October the first, no evidence has been provided so far. So we'll follow on the situation. We'll follow whether any dead fish or other affected animals or plankton or something will will appear, and then we'll be able to speak to further environmental experts. So far, it has not happened. Okay, let's turn to the interview with uh, Sasha Müller-Krenner now. Our colleague Boris Schneider began by asking Sasha what we knew about the impacts of the methane leaks uh, so far, including the impacts on the environmental front in the short term. So what we know that we have three relatively large leaks and that in addition to that we seem to have one smaller leak and right now well methane uh, natural gas is leaking out of all of those uh, which basically means that it uh, goes through the sea the, the pipelines are 70 to 80 meters below surface as as bubbles uh, and then it ends up in the air and at the end in the atmosphere and as methane is a very potent greenhouse gas that uh, well contributes to the greenhouse effect is it right that it's more potent and uh, in a way more dangerous for the atmosphere than CO2? Yes, it is. So methane is a greenhouse gas that over the period of the next 20 years uh, equals 80 times the greenhouse effect of a molecule of CO2. Well, what that means is that uh, you have a volume that is coming out of the pipeline uh, that equals uh, half of the annual emissions of a country like Denmark. Or when you translate it into CO2, it equals uh, emissions that are higher than the emissions of one of the larger coal-powered plants that we have in Europe. So it's a substantial amount. That sounds very serious. Um, let's look at the possible solutions of this problem. Is there any way we can fix those leaks or at least diminish this very important or very intense impact that you just mentioned? Um, so, for example, there's been talk of burning the gas. This is a procedure that is also known as flaring um, in order to reduce the methane concentration. Is this something governments may be willing to consider at this point? Well, I must say that at this point in time, most of the damage is already done because most of the methane has already left the pipeline. So what I've said from the beginning is that the best thing would be to open the pipeline in Lubmin on the German side and, well, let's just consider for a moment that Gazprom would act as a responsible company also on the Russian side and basically let the gas out of the pipeline, pump it out of the pipeline, let it out of the pipeline in the grid, in storage facilities, because there it could be used as natural gas could be burned, which would still turn it into CO2, but not into much more dangerous methane. So now uh, this does not seem to happen. I'm not sure for which reasons, maybe legal reasons. The other option that uh, in principle could work is burning, flaring the methane. However, the large uncontrolled amounts that we have, I think the authorities made the decision that it's too dangerous to flare such amounts, that this would uh, present another uncalculable risk for the marine environment, for the sea, for sea transport. So that was not done. Last option that has been considered is that whether those leaks could be repaired, but the fact is those leaks are too large so that even a temporary repair would not have worked. In the longer term things, they would uh, mean fixing the, the tubes themselves and uh, that can only be done when the, the pipelines are empty and then we're back to square one. You talked about Gazprom intervening. Has there been any communications between Gazprom and European governments? 
and not that I know of, and that is one of the problems that we're having now with both the pipelines, that there's almost no communication left. We do know that uh, Siemens Energy, which is the company that has uh, built the turbines for both pipelines, is still communicating with Gazprom, uh, that the companies that uh, buy the gas from Gazprom, at least that bought the gas, gas coming through Nord Stream 1, were obviously regularly communicating with the marketing side of Gazprom, but on a political level, there does not seem to be functioning communication. Additional problem is that the Nord Stream 2 company, which owns the second of those two pipelines, is uh, well uh, in an insolvency in processes. It's almost bankrupt, so they only have a, a very small rump team still operating. So they are not really operational. They don't have the experts anymore on board, just some lawyers basically type business for the company. So that's an additional problem. And Sasha, do you know or does anybody on the European side know how much uh, natural gas is actually left in those pipelines and connecting to that, how long the leaks might be going on? There is very little left, it seemed. Most of it has already gone. And the Danish authorities, they say that uh, the rest will be gone by the weekend, so probably by Sunday, and give it, a, give it a day or two. But So it will have basically needed a week for the, the pipeline to, to empty its content into the Baltic Sea and from there to the atmosphere. So the blasts have naturally brought concerns over energy security at the forefront of the conversation. And there are several ways of responding to this. On the one hand, one can further ramp up defense of fossil fuel and nuclear infrastructure. This week, for example, Norway's prime minister said its military will be more visible at oil and gas installations. And on the other, this could also be an incentive to accelerate the green transition and decentralize energy supplies further in the spirit of renewable energy. Which response do you think is more likely to prevail in Europe? What, what's the tone of the conversation that's being had at the moment? Well, I guess... Uh... Right now, the conversation in Europe is very much focused uh, on the coming winter on energy prices and how we keep the economy going and how we keep apartments warm. Therefore, what we have to do is we have to do the one without uh, forgetting the other. Uh, obviously, in the short term, we must make sure that similar accidents or sabotage acts, whatever it was, do not happen in other areas because it would be quite a drama if the, the Norwegian gas pipes would be hit by a similar sabotage act that would really create major disruptions of the European economy. On the other hand, uh, we also must uh, well make the argument now that uh, this is part of the risk that we have when we continue to have those large-scale fossil infrastructures. Now, we as an organization, we actually litigated against the construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, and part of our argument always was there are security concerns. It's not only climate security, but it's also material security concerns. So what do you do? We basically asked that the licensing authorities, what do you do in case of an accident? What do you do in case of a terrorist act? And what's the emergency plan? So the answer, the response was, well, there will not be an accident and it is extremely unlikely there will be terrorist acts, therefore no emergency plan. This is what we see now. There was no plan what to do in case of an accident. Basically, Europe watches, the, expl the explosions have happened, and Europe watches that the pipelines empty themselves in the atmosphere without reaction. 
So what will happen next? That's the huge question. So will this lead to new, well, security protocols for those kind of projects? Will this lead to rethinking whether those projects make sense in the future or whether we strategically have to replace them by infrastructure that is more resilient besides being more climate friendly, which would be renewable infrastructure. And one question that I would dare to ask is what should happen with those rusty pipelines on the Baltic Sea? I don't think they will be repaired in the short term. I don't think they should be repaired. They will fill with seawater now. They will be very difficult to repair. They will continue to erode. And I think they should be removed. Well, they don't belong in an ecosystem. And they also contain a lot of valuable raw material, a lot of expensive steel. So they should be taken out and that steel should be put to better use. How sympathetic are governments to I told you so voices such as yours uh, in the time being? Well, uh, I see that the media are picking them up and I think that that case has to be made and no one likes to hear I told you so, but in that, that case we did. Well, we uh, fighting legally against the Nord Stream Pipeline project, which has always been a very popular project in Germany. It has uh, had uh, the broad support of the political elites, of the economic elites, and uh, we were always, uh, it was always an unpopular proposition to say we don't need that project for climate uh, purposes plus additional arguments that are very valid and um, I think uh, we we also have to well analyze what went wrong in the German debate in the last decades how Germany got itself into that dependency of Russian gas that had a lot to do with uh, deeply entrenched interests political leaders in Germany had German business had with a specific German business model that relied on cheap Russian gas and I think it makes a lot of sense to analyze what went wrong and to identify who made which strategic decision that led us into the situation we're in now and that might not be a popular exercise but it's a necessary one. So the blasts were, as we've discussed, a climate event, even though of smaller proportions than some may fear. Um, such act threatens not only our energy security, but our climate security the, and the viability of our planet at large. Do you think this could accelerate the push for UN institutions to take climate security more seriously? For example, in recent years, European countries such as France, the UK and Belgium have attempted to bring climate threats onto the agenda of the UN Security Council, calling on the body to produce annual reports uh, on, on climate security. And Russia has opposed these efforts. Do you think this might accelerate this, this movement? Now, for the last decades, we had a relatively academic debate on the concept of climate security. And uh, I've seen really uh, with uh, a lot of interest and in the last years, uh, well, there has been a strong emphasis on climate security, not only as an interesting academic idea, but as something of relevance to foreign policy making. Now, the new German foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, has made it her job to make sure that Germany has a national security strategy that includes climate security as one of its main premises. Now, 
I believe this is necessary and this has to happen now because this is just one component of climate security. Climate refugees, climate migration are different elements. So climate security has to be one of the main premises on how we look at security and of strategic interest of Germany or of Europe. However, I believe that now uh, the war of aggression of Russia against Ukraine has led to well, a more traditional view on security. Basically, we see security conversations that remind myself of history books of security. This seems to be a security situation like we had it around World War One or around World War Two. But I believe, uh, and I certainly hope, that uh, we can make sure that this progress in thinking that security is not only simply military security, but that uh, phenomena of global change and climate change being the most prominent one are part on how we have to think about security. So I hope that this idea will prevail and after the war that we will continue to base our securities approaches on more things than just, well, traditional uh, military considerations. Sasha Müller-Krenner, thank you very much for making yourself available today, uh, particularly at such short notice. Thank you very much. That's it for today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and share the episode on social media. Our podcast is supported by Enost, a Berlin-based NGO backing cross-border journalism, the Moscow Times and the European Climate Foundation. A big thank you to our three partners for making our work possible. We'd love to know your thoughts on the topics we discuss in each episode. Get in touch on Twitter, where you'll find us at Eurasian Climate. If you can, please support our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Eurasian Climate. We'll be back soon with a new episode, so see you then. Music